and welcome to episode 24 of Rural Matters, a leading podcast on rural education, health, and the economy in the United States. Greetings to our returning listeners and a warm welcome to our new listeners. We're happy you're here. You can listen to Rural Matters on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We encourage you to subscribe and receive new episodes automatically. Also, we welcome your feedback. So if you've got ideas for upcoming podcasts, a question about an episode, or just want to chat, send us an email at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail.com. Now I'd like to introduce today's guests who are joining us for a discussion on rural school leadership. We have first Dan Dominich, Executive Director of AASA, the School Superintendents Association, Jerome Pio, Superintendent of Vermilion Parish Schools in Abbeville, Louisiana, and Jewel Walker, Deputy State Superintendent of Operations for the Montana Office of Public Instruction. So welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. So I'm really excited to have the three of you on. Um, And in part, what I'm so excited about is that each of you represent a different level of school administration or educational policymaking. Um, And so given that range of perspectives, um, I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation. Um, So first, why don't we begin with um, you telling us a bit about who you are, where you work, and what your role is there. Um, Dan, maybe we can start with you. Sure, thank you very much, Mara. So uh, I am the executive director for uh, AASA, which is the School Superintendents Association. We represent uh, all of the school superintendents in the United States, uh, and I've uh, held this position now for uh, 10 years. Prior to that, I had been a school superintendent for 27 years. Uh, it's uh, it's just a great job to have, and it's a great opportunity for, for me to uh, work with our colleagues all around the country, and I'm very uh, happy to be here with you today. Great. Thank you. Jewel, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role? Yes. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in the podcast. Um, my name is Jewel Walker, and I have served 21 years as a rural superintendent in Montana, uh, most recently in a school district that had 85 students. And as a, stu- as a superintendent, I have been involved with our state association, serving as the Montana Association of School Superintendent President, the School Administrators of Montana President, and also serving on the AASA Executive Committee for Region 1. And I am currently serving my second term on the governing board for AASA. Um, in June, I began as the Deputy Superintendent of Operations at OPI, and I um, am finding my focus will be on uh, career and technical education, licensure, accreditation, and finance. And also my role is to continue to stay connected with superintendents and administrators in the field. Great. Thank you. Jerome, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role? Uh, Jerome Pio, Vermilion Parish, about 125 miles, 150 miles from New Orleans. Uh, I'm superintendent of a rural district. We have 20 schools, uh, 11 of which are A's. We are one of the only A districts in our area. There's only nine in the state of Louisiana. Approximately 10,000 students in our district. We are growing. Our smallest school is 179 students, and our largest is approximately 1,000 students and growing. So uh, we, we have the whole gamut here in Vermilion. Uh, look forward to this podcast and thank you for the opportunity. So we're on the threshold of a new school year right now. 
Um, so for each of you in your different roles, what do you see as your number one priority for this uh, upcoming year? Well, let me uh, start off by saying that here at, uh, at AASA, where uh, our mission really is uh, advocacy on behalf of public education and being as, as supportive as uh, we can of our, our school systems, uh, that this year we have as uh, a priority really working and supporting our rural superintendents. Uh, in reality, uh, almost two-thirds of our uh, districts and superintendents are in rural areas. And in working uh, with them, and you heard Jules say before, uh, Jules has been working with us for quite some time. We were really delighted to have her on our executive committee and now still serving on our governing board. Uh, we're getting a lot of feedback uh, from our rural superintendents in terms of their needs. And we're focusing this year uh, primarily on, on professional development, uh, providing opportunities for them to participate and hearing from them the difficulty uh, for them to do that, uh, such as uh, not being able to get out of their district and travel, such as the, the lack of funding to be able to, to provide or pay for professional development if that's available. So these are the things we're working with them on in hope in, in hopes that we'll be able to provide the rural superintendents and aspiring leaders into the rural superintendency with the skills that they need uh, to do the job to provide their kids with a quality education. That's a, that's a very uh, interesting topic you brought up there. And Dan, I appreciate that as a local superintendent. Um, one of the obstacles or even a priority we have are some of the changes in um, the accountability system and uh, the messaging. Rural superintendents have a very difficult time bringing in uh, the media. Uh, they're, they're more uh, acclimated to be in the uh, rural uh, urban areas and not the rural areas. So it's very difficult to get our message out. So that's one of our prior priorities, but it's also an obstacle. Mm -hmm. um, just that positive push and really getting our message out to the constituents so they know that we're doing a great thing, even with these changes in the accountability system that are coming from the top down. And um, I guess I will switch topics just a little bit. I, my priority for the year is how to advance career and technical education. And that has been a focus for ASA in regard to redefining READY. And so I want to make it a focus so that it is a conduit for all students to prepare for the real world. And that will be statewide, college, career, and life READY. And um, we have that opportunity through a new marketing hire who will create more of an awareness and have an impact on student involvement in CTE and CTSOs, which are the career and technical student organizations, because they do make an, an incredible difference for students. And that also involves creating partnerships with businesses and industries for work-based learning. Um, opportunities. So that's that's where my focus is going to be. Great. So as you think about this upcoming year and some of this work that you're um, taking on, what do you see as some of the like the number one opportunities that you have like in this particular moment? And what do you see as some of the top challenges? Well, let me in response to uh, uh, Jules' uh, priority, uh, career and uh, technical education, and this whole uh, uh, concept uh, initiative that we have at ASA in terms of redefining ready. Uh, that we are uh, excited about the opportunity to work with the Department of Education, actually, 
Uh, one of their initiatives this year is this youth apprenticeship uh, program, uh, which very much uh, provides uh, the, the pathway, the alternative pathways to, to many of our students. You know, we're, we're kind of dealing, and I'd love to hear from uh, Jerome and, and, and Jewel on this, but, uh, you know, there's a culture in education uh, that has been developed uh, certainly over the last 20 years that would suggest that uh, in order for an educational system to be successful and a student to be successful, it means that they're going to graduate from high school, go to a four-year college, and graduate from a four-year institution. The reality is that less than 40% of our students wind up uh, going to a four-year college and graduating with a four-year degree. What happens to the other 60%? And that's what I think we're beginning to address now uh, by focusing on, on other pathways uh, to success, uh, which is not just the, the four-year degree, and providing those students with that opportunity and valuing that opportunity, you know, the, in the hope that at some point we get to the point where where we honor the plumber as we honor honor the the PhD. I totally agree. Uh, right now, in in Vermilion Parish, we have approximately fifty percent of our our students go to a four year university. Twenty five percent will move on to a uh, two year or technical uh, community college. Um, and the other 25% are actually going through our, our own pathways. Uh, it's, a, it's a great direction in which our state is actually moving right now. Um, our, we have made many partnerships with some of the largest oil fields. Um, we don't teach agriculture anymore, the old ag. We teach these new technical pathways in welding. We have the actual material that's donated by um, uh, companies from around us. We have uh, nursing and hospitals and uh, nursing facilities that work with us. We have a CNA program on site. What we did was we just reconfigured some of the old uh, buildings, reconfigured them, and rethought, uh, re-imaged the, the actual programs, created those pathways, and we're becoming very successful. We have the second highest uh, graduation rate uh, in Vermilion Parish in Louisiana. Um, really moving forward because we're giving the opportunity to our students to be successful in life. doesn't matter if you go to a four-year, two-year. When you graduate, you have those endorsements to make sure you are sellable uh, to our local businesses. And so I will finish with that. Yes, I think that we're all headed in a very positive direction because we're working on the employability skills professional skills and experiential opportunities for all kids. And basically that is preparing everyone, all of our students for the real world. So I, I uh, wholeheartedly agree that we are headed in a very good direction, just as Dan and Jerome have said. So it sounds like all three of you are talking about um, an opportunity here that are given new attention um, and perhaps some federal attention to career and technical education and supporting um, multiple pathways after high school graduation. Um, what do you see as some of like the top challenges that you're wrestling with right now? Well, on a local level, it, it's funding. And uh, we do receive some funding, but of course, state funding has stayed stagnant for the past 11 years in Louisiana, has been no um, extra money out there. Our oil revenues have decreased, sales tax have decreased. So we really have to look at um, what's in the best interest of our students. Uh, it, so it, it is a, a challenge right now just through the funding to make all of these different opportunities possible. You've got to get very creative 
with the funding while following all state and federal guidelines. And that's something that we uh, uh, at the national level are very much concerned with. And, uh, you know, we're very active in terms of uh, monitoring uh, appropriations at the federal level. Um, You know, this year, it's uh, unusual to the extent that uh, we saw a Republican administration uh, basically uh, put together a a budget that uh, I think we, we, we dreamed of having and never thought we would substantial dollar amounts, but even so, we are very much concerned with uh, the budget that's being discussed now for the following year, where there are significant cuts that are being proposed for education. And we still understand, and, and, and as Jerome said earlier, uh, there are still, the, the, the majority of states around the country are still spending less on education than they were prior to 2008. Uh, so there are many school districts around the country that are still functioning with fewer dollars than they had 10 years ago, which is the, the, almost incredible to say that. Uh, so that definitely is an ongoing concern, and we will battle. Uh, we will continue that battle here in, in, in Washington to ensure that as, as they, think, they begin putting together this uh, budget for 2020, uh, that it, it's not a budget that is going to uh, continue to put the hurt on school districts that so many districts have had for the past decade. Um, And I guess I would finish up with the fact that I think it's important um, with the reauthorization of the um, Perkins um, that, that we're looking at being able to combine efforts so that we've got a lot of different department of labor's um, our um, higher education. Everyone is looking at um, career readiness at this point. So we all need to have that same vision and work together so that we can impact as many students as possible. So, and, and that requires the funding and, and the focus. And by the way, I'm, Greg, I'm glad you brought up the Perkins, uh, Jewel, because uh, we, we at ASA actually were concerned over Perkins and we raised those concerns uh, <clears throat> to uh, uh, both the Senate and the House. We were very, very happy with the bill that the House had passed two years ago, and we were hoping that that's the bill that the Senate would take in, uh, approve, uh, as was. Um, Unfortunately, the Senate saw fit to uh, add uh, accountability standards uh, to Perkins that were reminiscent of the No Child Left Behind era, and we were very concerned about that and opposed uh, their doing that. But nevertheless, the bill has passed. Uh, We're glad that it has. Uh, I think there are many things in there that uh, will certainly uh, allow the uh, career and technical education movement to to move forward uh, and and for districts to to provide the the kind of alternative pathways to students that uh, that's very much needed in our economy. So to follow up on that, um, uh, Jewel and Jerome, how do you think that this reauthorization will affect um, the Perkins programs in your state or district? For for us, there. We don't see a major uh, impact with the changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been very creative over the past few years. We all we have taken Perkins funds and utilized them the appropriate way and in, uh, in how to best uh, give the supplies and materials to our students so they can be successful. Uh, one of the ways in which we did that was these partnerships with business. I think uh, rural superintendents have to get out of the box and uh, be out there with your, 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 your other CEOs of some of the major companies, 
superintendents are CEOs. And when you look at it and you walk up and ask them, what do y'all need? And then you build out for what they need and utilize Perkins funds the, the way in which they were intended. We do not see a major impact here in South Louisiana with any of the districts. Uh, we, we're getting, looks like we're going to continue with the same amount of funds. It's just how, do you, how other districts have utilized those funds. For us in Vermillion, we do not see a major impact. And I, and I would go ahead and add to that. I, I completely agree that it's very important that we engage with business and industry. And what Dan had said, yes, um, ASA was very involved in the reauthorization. And looking at that, I think that the funding um, certainly helps promote the cause for pathways and for employability skills for students as well as experiential opportunities. Um, however, I do think that the paperwork is very burdensome and requires a lot of time, especially in rural districts where there are very few individuals to complete the paperwork. Um, it, it, it requires more oftentimes in our smaller school districts than the money to help students. So I, I really think that that needs to be looked at and reviewed and monitored at all times because um, we need to be vigilant that we are putting those funds towards students and what can help them with their futures rather than uh, spending time on the paperwork. So at this point, I want to take just a brief break and thank our national sponsor, AASA, the School Superintendents Association. In response to the growing violence in our public schools, AASA just released School Safety and Crisis Planning, a toolkit for proactive best practices before, during, and after a crisis. Specifically designed for superintendents and other district administrators, the online resource features a select group of safety leaders throughout the country who are ready to provide peer-to-peer -peer guidance about a variety of crises, including school shootings, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires, suicides, and other major incidents that arrive without a moment's notice. The toolkit also features a 24-hour hotline, which will provide superintendents with round-the-clock access to help navigate their immediate needs at any time. Resources were also contributed by the American School Counselor Association, the National Association of School Psychologists, the National School Boards Association, and the National School Public Relations Association. As a part of the kit, Crisis Go, an AASA school solutions partner, is offering an emergency planning communications app at no cost to AASA member districts to allow school leaders to send audible emergency alerts and enable two-way communications to every computer and mobile device in the school. To access the Crisis Toolkit, please visit www.aasacentral.org slash school safety. So now let's get back to our discussion. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what it means to be a rural superintendent specifically um, and about professional development. So all three of you um, either have been or are uh, rural superintendents. And I'm curious um, as to what you, see, what you see as unique about being a rural superintendent and whether you feel like you were actually prepared. Were you trained for working um, in a rural context? I don't think anybody's ever trained to be a superintendent, actually. Leadership. <laughs> leadership. Um, either you're a born leader or you're not. Uh, what you learn in school is not what is actually hands-on. And that's why associations like AASA are so important for superintendents to be part of. You can talk to somebody that's been in the field that you can reach out and uh, discuss some of the, the, the problems. Here in Vermillion, one of the, the biggest problems is, like you said, hurricanes and floods. 
Uh, we had six schools go under um, underwater three times. And what do you do? Who do you turn to? You can't turn up north and say, hey, guys, wh- how do you deal with this? They're dealing with the snow. But the actual crisis and, and how to handle it is the key. And uh, so what we did was we built walls around our schools. We have a 14-foot berm around one school, uh, anywhere from six feet to 14 feet. We became um, very vigilant in being proactive and making to ensure that our schools are ready. But you don't learn this in school. No one ever teaches you how to do it. But it's because of experience like Dan and Jules have, who are superintendents like me that are only six years in as a superintendent can turn to creating these partnerships and these uh, cohorts where you can turn to these experienced superintendents and ask questions because they have lived it before you have. So it seems like you're saying that no amount of um, prior training could have prepared you for being being either a superintendent or a rural superintendent specifically. There Um, there is not. (laughs) And it's just about these current networks. Um, What about you, uh, Jewel and Dan? I, I will go ahead, uh, go ahead with that thought process. It is uh, very true. Um, as a rural superintendent, I filled many hats. I was the superintendent, curriculum director, special education director, transportation director, all of those different hats. So I had to learn a lot about buses, a lot about curriculum, uh, special education, all of that. And so there wasn't any amount of preparation. However, it was great on-the-job training. Um, in which I learned each of the different components of a school district and the functioning of them. Um, but it is, it's about the networking and it is about the involvement and being able to turn to our colleagues at the state level and at the national level uh, to, to have the conversations that will make a difference and also have a good understanding of what's happening throughout the state or nation as to good practices and what is the most effective. So that's where I got a lot of my information was my involvement um, with those associations, um, AASA, as well as the state one, our uh, superintendent's association here in Montana. Um, But for professional development, it was understanding um, where the focus and what is current and being able to bring those individuals into the state um, and into the district. A lot of times we had to do regional professional development to make it uh, efficient because a lot of times the speakers, and it's what Dan spoke to earlier, cost and efficiencies. And so um, that involvement and engagement helps bring um, the best practices and the most current information. So that as a superintendent, that was what was the most helpful. So we have, uh, as I did mention earlier, as a priority this uh, year, focusing on on better meeting uh, the needs of the rural superintendent and those that aspire to that job. It is a unique uh, position. Uh, you know, there. I was a superintendent in a school district with 2,300 kids when I first started. And I wound up being a superintendent in a district with 190,000 students in Fairfax County, Virginia. And both the jobs had the title of superintendent, but clearly they were very different jobs. Uh, and so when, when you look at the rural superintendent working in districts, uh, and, and by the way, the median size district in this country is 2,000 students. 
So there are 14,000 school districts in America, but 7,000 of them have less than 2,000 students. That's a very different job uh, than the superintendent who's in a district with, you know, 40, 50,000 or uh, 190,000 as I had. So we, we want to focus on the unique needs of the rural superintendent who basically is the chief cook and bottle washer. You know, I've talked to rural superintendents who drive the bus, uh, who are also the principal of the high school, uh, and, and, you know, have a number, and in, in many cases, uh, superintendents that are actually superintendent of two or three districts. Uh, and those are unique positions with different needs and different skills. And, and that's what we're doing. We're talking to, uh, superintendents like Jerome and, and, and Jewel and her experiences in finding out how do we craft a program. And by the way, focusing mostly on, on taking advantage of the technology to make it online uh, so that it's convenient for these superintendents to participate, to network with their colleagues, and develop uh, the kinds of skills that will better allow them to do the, the, the very important job that they're doing. So I pose this question then to Jewel and Jerome. Um, for you right now, what additional training or support do you need in your role as a rural superintendent? I just like to say that um, when I started six years ago with a, quite a few experienced superintendents in our area, the uh, greater Acadiana area, we call it eight districts, there's only two left. The turnover is so quick mm. uh, with superintendents, it's almost painful. Once you start to build these relationships and the discussions, there, the turnover is there. So I, I guess that's one of the hardest, hardest parts is being able to reach out to the, the newbie, mm-hmm. helping them along, but also trying to find out what their um, experience level is and how they can add and answer some of the questions that, that you need. Uh, but it's important that that communication continues, even though there's this quick turnover with superintendents. What about for you, Jewel? What additional training or support do you see rural superintendents needing right now? It's what Jerome said in regard to most areas have regional meetings, and it's that collaboration and involvement, but it's bringing what we're doing at the national level and state level to those rural districts and helping them to become more aware of the resources that they have available. Uh, so I think that that is that is very important. I, again, it is all about the networking and engaging them so that they the longevity. I also think that the governance is a part of it. Um, I was in my last school district for 16 years, and so I um, learned a lot throughout that time and reaching out to those new ones so that um, they they feel a sense of belonging to the organization or the superintendents in the region and within the state and nation so that they um, realize what's available to them and that we're all in this together. I'd just like to add on a little bit. Prior to me sitting on the governing board for AASA, I sat on with American Heart Association, the Greater Southeast Affiliate. There are so many um, resources that are available through AASA, American Heart, and other nonprofits that really can provide superintendents the resources that they need. The professional development is important, but it's also to get the message to the superintendents that this is the, it's available to you. You just need to find it. Um, I just think there needs to be more of a push 
uh, from national organizations down to the superintendents to the local areas. So we know, and then having those boots on the ground, um, being able to message back uh, to the, our other colleagues in our, our, our areas. And by the way, we have found uh, through all of the programs that we do uh, run uh, for our superintendents that probably uh, the one thing they value most is the networking. Uh, is that opportunity to to talk to their colleagues uh, and to share their ideas and to have that uh, friendly criticism uh, of ideas and to ask, hey, have you done this in your district and how did it go? Uh, after all it's said and done, it's that interchange among the superintendents and that network that really brings the most value to the table. I 100% support that uh, comment right there. So in the last um, couple of minutes that we have, I wanted to turn to um, a recent policy item coming from D.C. Um, and this is a proposal to consolidate the U.S. Department of Education and the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, so this is um, perceived a bit as a messaging exercise, um, but the idea of merging the U.S. DOE with another agency is not a new one. Um, so if this were to move forward, what do you see as the benefits of this plan? And also, what do you see as some of the challenges of the plan? I will go ahead and start on that one. I think the benefit of such a merger would have to do with the departments working together and on the topic that I, we've been discussing in terms of the strengthening of education um, and, you know, and focusing on creating more opportunities for students, especially through the work-based learning, um, pre-apprenticeships and all of that, those connections. Um, however, I, with that being said, I, pre I perceive the difficulties are that it's diluting the foundations of education. Um, we must first place value on education, mm -hmm. and so that our most valuable resource being our children, and so that joining of departments may dilute that. And uh, so I have a very, very strong concern with that because we need to look at what is important for the whole child beginning in pre-K, and I don't think the Department of Labor plays in that arena. I have to agree. I, I don't see it happening, mm -hmm. but the whole child kind of piqued my interest uh, because everything we're t discussing really, in the end, talks about each and every child, every child, every day. And we should be focusing everything we have on the students in the district, the students in the communities, because in the end, they're our future. So I, I, I really don't see it happening. But if it does, you're looking at three to four year build for a district to change anything that they're doing uh, in order to impact students by the time they graduate. And I would just add that uh, from a national perspective that, uh, first of all, I don't, I don't see this happening in our conversations with the folks in both the House and the Senate, that, that there is no real incentive uh, or desire for them to do this. Uh, but again, it, it, it would just uh, uh, create a, a huge enterprise, and uh, uh, education needs to focus, uh, as, as was mentioned uh, before uh, by Jerome and, and Jules, you know, we, we're talking about preschool, we're talking about elementary, we're talking about high school, we're talking about child development, we're talking about wraparound services, we're talking about a lot of things that need a lot of attention, and that attention cannot be diluted by creating this monster organization that incorporate workforce preparation uh, and education and labor uh, all in one organization. Great. 
Well, I wanted to thank you, the three of y'all, so much. This has been a really interesting discussion. Um, and like I said, being able to get these kind of multiple levels and different perspectives on education and thinking about rural school leadership um, has really been wonderful. So thank you, all three of you, very much for giving us your time today. Thank you for having thank this you. discussion. We'd like to extend our appreciation to all of our marketing partners, Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Rural Educators Alliance, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, NCTA, the Rural Broadband Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative. These partnering organizations allow Rural Matters to be an even more powerful forum for the discussion of issues affecting rural communities. Want more information on rural issues or to suggest a guest or topic? Just email us at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it if you'd rate this podcast on iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Rural Matters is produced by Michael Levin Epstein and Susan Semplis. Also, this is my last episode as host of Rural Matters. I'm beginning a sabbatical this month and I'm focusing on my research. And Michelle Rathman will be taking the reins. I've so enjoyed hosting Rural Matters this summer. More than anything, this experience has been inspiring. It's made me excited about all the good people doing innovative work in rural communities. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next time on Rural Matters. Mm-hmm.